0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, and today I'm speaking with Mariana Alessandri, author of the book Night Vision, Seeing Ourselves Through Dark Moods, and Gisela Chipe, author, uh, actor of stage and television, a producer, and the audiobook narrator for this book. Mariana, Gisela, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much. Hi, this is Gisela here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thanks for both of you agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about the the two of you and what brought you to this uh, project.
2: Well, I wrote the book. So this is Mariana. So I'll go first. Um, What brought me to the project was that i have bad days and i see signs that say hashtag no bad days so i wanted to write about <laughs> in defense of all of those who have sometimes bad days and who can't stay sunny and who don't stay positive and i don't think um i don't think there's anything particularly wrong with us i think we are just people who sort of see the world um Not through that lens of everything always having to be sort of positive all the time. So I wanted to call out a bunch of toxic positivity and I wanted to defend those of us who live in the dark a lot of the time. Um, So that's why I wanted to write this book and I wrote it during the quarantine uh, from 20 to 21. So it was definitely apt, an apt time to write the book.
1: Um, And... Mariana, thank you for doing it because it's an incredible book. I hope everyone has a chance to read Night Vision and or listen to the audiobook. And this is Gisela right now, and I am the narrator for Mariana's beautiful book. Uh, I was um, approached by uh, Princeton Press for this project, and I said, this is an incredible, incredible book. I really want to be a part of it. And thankfully, you know, after kind of sending my stuff, I was accepted as the narrator. So that was great. Um, I think that in the narrating of it and prepping to narrate, uh, it was a really interesting time for me to be reading and narrating Mariana's book because I was definitely going through some dark days there. I really, really pushed myself during, um, the end of last year and, you know, hashtag no bad days with like hashtag blessed are also can be quite toxic, uh, that toxic positivity of being like, I'm fine. I'm really working all the time. And, um, and so there was a part of me that was feeling guilty about that. Having had a really amazing opportunities, not wanting to turn anything down, but then also feeling just completely, like drained and sad and <laughs> like crying over audiobooks. Uh, this one being one of them that I was really very moved, very moved by Mariana's words, by, by the way that Mariana holds all of us who are having these days and, and maybe even consistently depression, you know, just a little bit about me. Um, my family is from Ecuador and from Kentucky and in my both sides of my family depression definitely runs on both sides and so i'm always on the lookout you know making sure that i i don't don't stay too deep but i didn't ever have a tool i feel like to kind of learn from these times and mariana i feel like if you could talk to us a little bit more about that and how how people might be able to use this because I can definitely share from my experience, but I, I wanted to hear from you kind of your intention for folks. you You mentioned that you wrote this during the pandemic. That was a tough time for a lot of people. Um, and just kind of what what made you do it, and then how do you think people can benefit from reading slash hearing your beautiful book?
2: Yes, thank you. Um, I want to say thank you for reading my book because they they sent me a few options of voices. And I just loved your voice. And I was absolutely confident that you could pronounce all the words in Spanish and just feeling like, wow, I really hope this person says yes. And then when I got the news that you said yes, I was so excited. And then my next worry was, oh, I hope she likes it. (laughs) Because if she doesn't (laughs) like it, she might not, you know, read it very nicely. So I'm just really thrilled to hear that you like it. And it's such a funny experience writing a book that is about darkness and sadness and depression and having like kind of rejoicing over it. Like so many people, like my students and and other people kind of, we just get giddy about it. And that's part of the beauty, part of the recognition of like when we're allowed to just be ourselves. Like we don't have to stay positive. We don't have to be cheerful, like on purpose. We can sort of just... um like there's a cheer in recognition or there's like a comfort in recognition of just saying, Oh, can we just like drop the facade? So yeah, I can talk about um, like what I'm trying to do here and what we can, you know, take, take away from it is I'm trying to, since May is like mental health awareness month, I feel like I'm giving a new or a different take on mental health, mental illness. Um, The words we use for things, make a big difference. Right. And so if we live with depression and anxiety and we say that it's an illness and we say I'm broken and we say, you know, I'm chemically uh, imbalanced. And these are words that I'm getting from my students. I teach uh, at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. And my students tell me I'm broken, right? So I I think like, oh, okay, you've been taught that you're broken, right, from from our society. But I'm also a philosopher, who, um, you know, I, I teach philosophy and I teach a lot of ancient philosophy. And in studying these sources, I found that a lot of what we've actually learned about um, about like anger. My five chapters are anger, sadness, or dolor. Grief, depression, and anxiety. And a lot of the ways that we've been taught to talk about them come from ancient philosophy. And so we've been taught, for one thing, that pain, my pain is a burden. I should hide my pain. And so if you've ever asked yourself, you know, I have this thing, I shouldn't tell this person because it's going to make them sad. Then that comes from your philosophy is that pain is a burden that we should not share. We should not like inflict it on other people. So that's one of the things that I'd like to correct or, or at least like pitch in my own idea that it's not a burden, um, that pain is actually a gift that we share with other people and that not sharing it or like keeping it to myself um, is a personal choice, right? So I'm never trying to come out and say that you need to share your pain with everyone walking down the street, but that. If we can think of it as a gift that I'm giving to other people, then they have a chance to love us better. We're like opening ourselves up to other people and that they might have a chance to love us better. So I think of it as kind of um, connection. I use the the philosopher Miguel de Unamuno who says that we connect better when we're in pain than when we're sort of just happy because when we're happy, we kind of don't want anyone to bring us down. And so we can get a little bit like, um, like closed off to other people. Like we're afraid that someone's going to ruin it for us. But when we're in pain, it's almost like you're just raw and you have a chance to connect with other people. And so I have found this true in my own life and I've found it, you know, my students have reported that it's true in their lives. And so that's one of the things there's, there's others. Um, We also think that we're supposed to cheer people up. I think that comes from the Epicureans, um, ancient philosophers who said that there's opposites, right? There's pleasure and there's pain. And to have kind of a life worth living, we have to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And most people who think about them think about the maximize pleasure part and they think, well, that's greedy or selfish. I don't really mind that. (laughs) I think maximize pleasure is great. The minimize pain is a kind of, for me, a mistake or a loss of understanding of what pain can do. So when someone's down and you may have experienced this, like if you're feeling sad, someone else thinks it's their job. Like if someone loves you, they think it's their job to like turn the light on and take you dancing and tell you to look on the bright side and tell you it's all going to be okay. But what happens often, I think, is that we just feel worse because we feel like, oh, Now I'm disappointing my friend because I can't even be happy for them. Like they just want to see me happy. My my loved ones want me to be happy and I can't be happy. So now I feel shame on top of feeling sad. And so I want to kind of correct or add in my own interpretation of, of some of these dark moods and see like, can we talk about them a little bit nicer, both on an individual level and on a societal level, such that we don't go around thinking of ourselves as like, there's something fundamentally wrong with me, or I'm fundamentally broken because I can't, you know, hashtag stay positive.
1: We left off with Mariana talking about how, I'm sorry, I didn't ask your pronouns, Mariana. What are your pronouns? Oh, I don't know. So she is fine for now. Okay, cool. Yeah. And my pronouns are she, her, ella. And Mark, what are... would you like to share your pronouns? He, him. Great. Awesome. Um, So Mariana was telling us about kind of her intention for the book. And you got to talking, Mariana, about the ancient Greek philosophy, ancient Roman philosophy, and then juxtaposing that with 19th and 20th century philosophers like Maria Lugones, Audre Lorde, Miguel de Unamuno, C.S. Lewis, Gloria Saldua, and Soren Kierkegaard. And can you talk to us a little bit about why you chose those specific philosophers um, to juxtapose against the ancient philosophy that we maybe have known, but maybe don't know as much about these 19th and 20th century philosophers? Yeah, so when I would
2: um, kind of slip into a dark mood, thinking of anger right now, when I get really angry, I would just go back to my sources. And my sources are Plato, who says that when you're angry, you're a wanton horse run amok. And he also says you're a dark horse, right? So he's using this language too. Um, And I thought, yeah, that's right. Like I look in the mirror, like I've just yelled at my kids for the uh, hundredth time. It's quarantine, right? I feel like a terrible mom, a monster. I read uh, Seneca, who says anger's poison? We have to get rid of it. There's nothing good that comes from it. It's infectious. Um, and I would read Aristotle, who said, you know, yeah, um, you you can be angry, right? He was nicer than Seneca. You can be angry, but don't show it, <laughs> don't express it. <laughs> so I thought, oh, how am I gonna how am I gonna live with myself if this is my philosophy of anger? So then I started reading Audre Lorde, and she says anger's information, and I thought, oh, that's nice that's different. And I started reading Maria Lugones and she says, anger is self-care. Anger is protecting you. Anger is clear headed. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like what it did for me was an ability. It helped me not default to the idea that I shouldn't get angry because that is the sort of thing that sometimes I hear people say, and that I said, I'm sorry, I got angry. Mm-hmm. If you say that kind of thing, it means that you are taking a stoic position, which is to say, I can control whether I get angry or not. And I should not have allowed myself to feel that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I just thought this is never going to help me feel like I'm taking my own side. It's always going to turn me against myself. And so the, the each chapter is basically broken down into kind of ancient ways of seeing things or our education. We've We have this inheritance, even if we don't know it, mm-hmm. on our views about, Um, depression anxiety grief sadness and anger and then each chapter also has this just completely different education like you said by the existentialists who just begin with the premise that life is really hard and that we're in dark moods as much as we're in light moods and that you know human beings suffer and die. And we watch our people, the people we love most, we watch each other suffer and die. And so their starting point was so much better to me. I call it the dark because they, they shed like they didn't shed light on something. They they gave me shade. They allowed me to escape that feeling that I was always supposed to be eternal sunshine, right? Make your own sunshine. And I thought, I, I can't make sunshine. I live in South Texas. Like the last thing I want <laughs> is 24 hours sunshine. I need a cave. I need rest. I need, to go under a tree and i need shade and like i need to be okay where i am not thinking that i am deficient because i'm not always sunny
0: if i may why do you think that we've missed this do you think that we've overlooked it or that we've never quite read the text with with modern concerns in mind
2: um so you're talking about the cave specifically
0: yeah the the notion of, of 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 shade the the notion of 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 the value of the dark versus the the, the 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 toxic positivity of always having to be in the light and embrace the light even if it's not necessarily the best thing for us
2: I mean it's super Western uh, Gloria Anzaldúa talks about how in Aztec philosophy the dark and the light were both beautiful. The dark came before the light. The dark is not anything scary or dangerous or ignorant. And then you have Western philosophy that comes in that says enlightenment is right, right? You're supposed to get out of the dark and into the light. Light is knowledge. Light is safety. Light is cheerfulness, like all the things we're supposed to do. So I think a lot of it came from Western philosophy, but then you also have religion. I am the light of the world. We're supposed to seek the light. So I think we've just kind of run away with something that was never supposed to be an all or nothing scenario, Mm -hmm. but got sort of twisted into one and got, got, combined with the 1952 Norman Vincent Peale book, the power of positive thinking, right? So positivity and light, you know, all go together that now I think it's like a monster that has run away from us. Mm -hmm. um, That that now kind of uh, forces us or like, you know, bombards us with messaging all across our society about how we're supposed to choose happy and be happy always and be like a proton, always positive. And I see these signs and I want to crumple up on the floor because I'm like, oh, there's no way. How are we setting ourselves up? If this is the messaging of our society, how are we ever supposed to live as human beings who just suffer and watch our friends and loved ones
1: suffer? Oh, that is so rich and deep. Mariana, thank you for for bringing that perspective, because I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier, how the um, that you were saying that this sort of falls, this book falls into the self help category, but how how toxic sometimes even the idea of the self-help category is in a library or to, you know, if you're talking to your friends like, oh, I'm, I've got the self-help book and I'm going to, I'm going to be positive all the time. And there's a little bit of, I don't know, this kind of, it's shiny and new and like there's, that's my impression of that when I've gone to look for for some help in the times that I've felt dark myself. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, this book came at such a prescient time for me that I was very dark feeling and very lost and shameful about that. And sure, like there are times when, yeah, go speak to, you know, a a psychologist or whatever. But there are some times that I, you know, in my self-reflection, I caught myself saying these things that you mentioned in the book about like, oh, just looking on the bright side or, oh, like, I just want to shed some light on it and how the words that we use kind of shame us as well. And I just, I just really appreciate this other perspective. And also too that you were lifting up voices of queer women, of women of color, of folks who haven't necessarily been, um, at least in my, you know, experience being a layperson in philosophy, a layperson in self-help, and all of this uh, that. I wasn't exposed to Gloria Saldua. I wasn't exposed to Soren Kierkegaard. I wasn't exposed. I was exposed a little bit to C.S. Lewis um, because I think uh, that was kind of an acceptable way of looking or an acceptable author. I grew up um, a Baptist Christian and very like open Baptist Christians, uh, not those ones that don't believe in women in the in the pulpit, Um, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it, but that's one of the things that kind of made a schism between uh, my church and other organizations. But, um, so I really appreciated uh, that exposure to more than just C.S. Lewis and and frankly, you know, being a woman in the world, I feel like you were offering um, other women other female identifying other femmes in the world that would, I maybe have felt some of the things that I have gone through and that I feel like, even though the ancients, I don't think we should throw the baby with the bathwater out. Right. Um, can give, can, they can give us something, the ancient Greek and Roman philosophers. I just appreciate having the lens coming from closer to this time, so that we can reflect more specifically on what we know about the human condition. I mean, because even back then there was, you know, notions uh, that that don't really jive with how we are now. Or as you said, maybe they, the idea, I'm just thinking about like sexuality even, that people have a lot of shame around that. But the ancient Greeks, for my understanding, were very open about that kind of experience, that it wasn't like one gender or one um, focus. Anyway, I digress a little bit, but I, what I appreciated was the diversity of voices that you uplifted. And, um, I wanted to see if you had any favorites that you identified with, um, of the people that you brought up. Yeah. I, I want to say so many things. (laughs) Um,
2: no, about your own situation. I think part of what is hardest is when we are successful right? You are successful. And so if you're getting a lot of gigs, if you're doing a lot, if you're very like, you know, if things are working out, then you have even more pressure mm-hmm. to be like, oh, I can't complain because I have a job because I have these people looking for me, you know? So we feel even more pressure that we're supposed to like, you know, be be grateful for every minute of it, right? And mm-hmm. it just sets a bar that is just so high, like yeah. the no bad days, right? Not even one, not mm-hmm. one, right? So it's like, be grateful always, Oh, like you read that messaging and you're like, oh, I wasn't grateful for 10 minutes. What do I do? You know? Right. So I think in, in certain parts, it's people who are successful that, that have a lot of this toxic positivity inside of ourselves. And then you also talked about self-help and like, I just love self-help so much. Like (laughs) I have read so many books and I love it. And what I have figured out in reading them is what it does. The reason why it's kind of dangerous for me to read self-help is that it gives me homework self-help is designed, right? So you're suffering and you go to the store and you look at a book and then the book sort of promises something based on the author saying, I was in your spot and I did these things and I got out of it, Mm. right? So you take the book home, you're already suffering and then it gives you homework on top, right? So you're like, oh, I have to do these five things or these 10 things. And they usually all include a gratitude journal. And so then what happens is you end up feeling worse because you can't get yourself out of this misery that other that this author best-selling like rich author who actually needs you to be suffering in order to make themselves richer, right? Um you have to do those things, right? So and the blame is in is in there too. So so this is what I call in the book the broken story. If if the light says choose happy, you know, everything's great and that person can say I chose happy and they're a self-help author. And then you, you come to the book and even after reading the book and trying those things, you're not happy. Then the author, I mean, you know, famous authors have said, well, if you're not happy, it's on you. Hmm. And so that for me is the setup for disaster of like the normal self-help industry. I think of my book as different in that I'm trying not to give anyone homework. I'm not trying to say, well, you have to change your attitude about your bad moods or your dark moods. I'm actually trying to say, look, why here's, So one of the things I like to say is, I don't know if I can make you feel better but I think I know what's making you feel worse. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to turn the lens onto society. And instead of saying, you should talk nicer to yourself, which blames the person who's just infected with the toxic positivity, it's not their fault, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say, here's why you tend to say those things to yourself. And so I want society to change, but self-help is based on the principle that I cannot change my surroundings. I can only change myself. And I think that's our mistake, is believing that we can't actually like, change the emotional landscape of a society, I actually have like a bizarre faith in people that if we could just understand the processes by which we feel worse about ourselves, Mm. we could sort of lighten up on each other, we can stop buying the posters that say, keep it sunny or whatever, or just Mm. new mindset or overcome anxiety, like we can lower that. So it is going to take a societal effort, but I don't want to give the individual more homework as though we're doing anything wrong. Because I don't think we're doing anything wrong. We're reading the walls of our society. And those are saying, you're broken. You're no good. You're not good enough. You're not happy enough. What's wrong with you? And so I'm like, Woof, let me let me be a different kind of self-help that actually just shows why we tend to feel so badly and not everyone lives in this world I'm sure there's some people who can't relate to it at all but from what I've experienced there's a whole lot of people who can relate to the world that I live in so in part I wrote the book for myself and I'm just happy that other people kind of live in the same world and they're like also frustrated by it and they want the world around them to change too they want there to be more emotional flexibility in our moods like we don't always have to be happy and if we're unhappy Someone doesn't feel like they have to like make us happy or that something's terribly wrong that, you know, that that they have to like fix or something.
1: Yeah. You know, again, so many things I want to comment on what you said, but in terms of like the self-help industry and then also talking to the individual who's reading or listening to this book versus... Uh, addressing the societal, maybe systemic kind of uh, ways that we deal with mental health and depression and anger and what what you have, you know, talked about as like darker moods that um, I find that really interesting because as you said, the homework aspect kind of actually gives a little hope. I'm one of those people that like, oh, if I can like do something Uh, about it i'm I'm happy to try it you know but as you said it can set up sometimes for the kind of failure because even then at the end if you don't feel like you've done it well enough or um fully like oh maybe i'm broken in some way because it it didn't fix me or something like this i've definitely identified with those feelings and some of the statements that you're like hey as you said in the book um Maybe this is making you feel a little bit worse, and that the the holistic understanding of where we've kind of come from, and to where we could be now, I I have that bizarre faith as well that we can, um, I as you said maybe like lighten up on each other if we know more. So my hope is, and I don't know if this is possible, but are you are you. A, Pushing or trying to give access to your book in, um, you know, universities in in high schools. I mean, I feel so often that the things that we are learning now about the human nature, about the mind, about psychology, even just our our focus on mental health has changed in even just the last three years. Especially the pandemic made us question quite a bit. Um, and I always think like, man, if I'd only had this tool, if I'd only had this book when I was this age, you know, that might have helped me um, to not be so down on myself or that that there's the shame cycle in addition to feeling sad or yeah. anger and things. So are are we going to be able to see these in college campuses? I really hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that I was writing to my own
2: students, even though it's very clear that I always was. Um, there's just so many different populations that kind of benefit from this book, some of them unexpected, but I would love to see this in the like first year experience uh, around college campuses, because like you said, like to learn about it early and think, oh, this is why I feel so bad about myself. I'm not actually as much of the problem as I thought I was. I mean, I love Taylor Swift's song, "I'm the problem." It's me. I think mm-hmm. she's like nailing it. I'm not sure that she sees it the way I see it, but I think she's. I think it's like tongue in cheek. Like, oh yeah, the the problem must be me, right? It must mm-hmm. be me that everything is wrong. You know, like I must be doing something. And so, I'd like to get people to change from saying like, "There's something wrong with me," to just like, "There's something wrong." whether it's anxiety or anger, um, sadness, grief, right? Like there's just something wrong and I want to listen to it. So yeah, and about colleges and college students, I think that there's plenty of destigmatization campaigns, but what I have sort of noticed or learned is that at most what they do they take away shame in in the sense of like, you don't have to feel ashamed because everyone's in the boat with you. You're you're not alone. You're not the only anxious person on campus, which all my students always think they are. And they come and then they learn that everyone else in the class is anxious, right? So that's like, it's of limited use. But I find that like, if the bottom line is, no, you're not alone because we're all broken then I think, okay, we've got a language problem, we have a vocabulary problem, because we don't get past, like destigmatization doesn't give dignity, and I think that we are dignified, as even in depression, even on the floor of the bathroom, right, Mm. even when we're at our worst, we are human beings, Mm. who are incredibly, the way Ansaldúa says it, she's one of my favorites, you asked about, Mm -hmm. she says that we're, some of us are excruciatingly alive to the world, yeah, And I think, oh, that's true. And if we've spent our whole life trying to get armor on and not have a thin skin and all the things that people tell us to toughen up and shin up and all this kind of thing, like if we could sort of recognize we are the most sensitive creatures on the earth and that's good, right? That of course comes with drawbacks. There's a lot of pain involved because we feel it, right? We're We're vulnerable, raw creatures, but we have so much to add to the world that if I can provide some new vocabulary, like with anxiety, Kierkegaard says that it's, I mean, he doesn't use these words, but from what I'm hearing of him, it's a sign of emotional intelligence. Anxiety is it's telling you that something's wrong. And so I think, okay, what if we begin with the premise that anxious people are right, instead of b- beginning with the premise that anxious people are broken, or, you know, they see the world all wrong, they have cognitive distortions. There's many ways that we would talk about anxiety that are not quite flattering, but the way Kierkegaard talks about it. It is something that we can learn from. We should listen to it. It's probably alerting us to some deep down fears and worries about, you know, huge things like, you know, uh, free choice. Like, what are we going to do with our life? Do I regret Mm. what I did with my life or death or deep, deep, deep things that may manifest as very inconsequential things. But if we're just trying to eliminate it, like there was a book in 2020 called uh eliminate negative thinking. <laughs> right? <laughs> if the whole point is that we're just trying to get rid of it, then we're never going to listen to it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I would like to restore dignity, not necessarily to the mood. I don't have to say here's the the five gifts of your depression. Like I don't need to make the mood look better. I need to make the human look better. Like we are dignified. Mm. There is something beautiful about us, and I don't want that to go down the drain just because we're told that you know we're disordered and sick and diseased and all of the the words that we use for for these mostly mental illnesses.
0: If I may, that to me was one of the things I really enjoyed about the the book in terms of how you connected to this long tradition of thought. It's so easy to think of it in terms of the individual this is, you know, this is my problem. This is my burden that I'm bearing. This is, and, and I have to deal with it. And you're showing this, it, it, it's, it's universal and that it's not something that is because we, you know, are, 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 that connects this long tradition of, of some of the, you know, you know, these that, that, that has been tackled by some of the, you know, greatest minds in human history. We've been constantly wrestling with this. And what that says about how the fact that, you know, it's not just that we're not alone in the now, it's, you know, that that we're actually, you know, very much part of this human condition and, and and that there's a togetherness that belongs in that.
2: Yes, yes, yes. The problem, we we kind of tend to see the problem as an individual problem. So whether it's I go to self help, or I go to therapy, it's it's one by one by one by one. And I think, wow, that's going to take a long time, right? Because <laughs> if a whole society is afflicted with something or lives with something like anxiety, right? Like, why are we surprised that so many Americans live with anxiety as though it's just one by one by one by one. We're all cognitively distorted. Like, I don't think so. I think we have plenty of reason. I think it's got to do with all the things that you see as soon as you open your phone. And I'm not blaming phones. I'm just like, the world is something to be anxious about. So I don't think we're wrong, especially our little ones are not wrong to be picking up on all these things. And I don't necessarily want to blunt them and make them completely kind of hardened to all of the 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 horrors of the world. Mm. I'd rather use it and say okay, what is wrong? And what's wrong is wrong with the world, not necessarily what's wrong with you. You're sort of yeah. feeling it, you're picking up on it, but I don't I want to get out of the world of just like individual problem, individual solution and and blame, right? Individually caused. It's because you're not talking to yourself nice enough. I think that's just very short-sighted, but you're right that it, that is the way that we tend to portray it and I'd rather change the lens and just show, oh, look at all the things you see. Look at all the messaging you ingest every day. That may be why you feel that way about yourself. Society's talking badly about you. It's not necessarily that you're talking badly about yourself. You're just reading the writing on the wall.
1: Mariana, to that point about uh, the individual versus, uh, you know, looking at it um, in a more holistic way and kind of bringing dignity to the human, um you brought up Audrey Lorde and talking about anger, and when i'm i'm misr- i'm not remembering how audrey um characterized anger, but that there was my impression of this was that there was like a a useful anger that that was an informative anger or a kind of uh, talking especially about um i think we were reflecting in the book at that moment about uh the issues that are going on lately that have been bubbling for many, many years in traditionally marginalized communities and and that that there is wisdom in the anger and returning the dignity to that as well, and exposing people like me who didn't grow up reading Audrey Lord. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Yes, please. <laughs> um,
2: so think about like, what world do we create when we make especially women, ashamed of being angry? right? I had a student who just wrote a paper and presented on unladylike anger. And I thought, wow, if I had to create a society in which I wanted no advancement for women, I would make them ashamed of their anger and call it unladylike and call them ugly, right? Hit where it hurts. You're ugly when you're angry. So yes, right? Like a world like that, women won't know that they're dangerous. Women won't know that they're powerful. Audrey Lord says, every woman has an arsenal of anger that's just waiting to be tapped into. Mm. But so think about the opposite world where there's an arsenal of anger inside of all of us. She calls it also a tool, a tool with which to excavate honesty. If Mm. we were to approach anger as a tool instead of anger as by default, something monstrous or something wrong with me, we would get really far because we would actually be able to like sit and think about it. But if the if, if if anger is just something bad and poisonous and dangerous, then we're gonna go into the land of, okay, let's diffuse it, let's suppress it, let's get rid of it. Those would be the goals, let's manage it, right? Anger management. And and I think for someone like Lord, she would say, Oh, well, what's the use? You're gonna punch all your anger out on a punching bag? Like you've just wasted it. <laughs> mm. So she wants to say, let's think about it as a tool, let's think about it as um clear headed. Uh, Let's think about it as something that we can use. And again, it doesn't just say, okay, now anger's good and all anger's good. It's really nuanced. But what I'm trying to do, my very modest point in this chapter is to say, let's not default to anger is crazy, irrational, ugly. Because Mm -hmm. those are the things that I thought it was. Reading the the Greeks, it's crazy, irrational, ugly. And you have to straighten it out and you have to just be nicer and more beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. So... That's what I would like to do with all of these is say, let's get new words, right? New words, new vocabulary, new way to think about it, because then what you can do is you can sit and you can think about this anger. But if we're on the anger management plan, and this happened to me all the time, I would say, let me wait till I calm down, right? I'm supposed to calm down. Everyone says, count to 10. Don't talk about angry things when you're angry, you know, calm down and then talk about it. But what would happen is I would calm down and then it would go away. And I would say, Oh, I was just being silly. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just being silly. And then that thing would, you know, I thought it would go away, but of course it would just go deeper inside of me. Mm -hmm. Um, anger doesn't really like, it's not just going to really get diffused and go away. It's going to turn inward. Right. And, And there's lots of research about anger, like chronic pain is anger turned inward. There's like a lot of studies showing this kind of thing. Um, so instead of bottling it up or instead of diffusing it, or instead of saying, let me count to 10 and then I'll feel better and then I can talk about it. But that would really just weaken the anger. Let me think about what could I do with this anger? Let me write about it. Let me listen to it. Let me not just turn against it as if it's just something that is interrupting my life in a terrible way. It's actually trying to say something maybe about my condition,
1: you know. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, my sisters uh, mentioned when I was saying something about, oh, I regret this. And, you know, you're always hearing, no regrets. (laughs) And she was like, no, gee, that's a lesson. That regret is a lesson. And not to be like, oh, let's spin it to the positive, but like, take a look at that, sit with it. Why are you regretting it? And what is it teaching you about your values and what you would prefer to do in the future? Yes. So that was really helpful for me, a kind of a compassionate way of looking at it, that I feel your book, Night Vision, really is a gift to everyone out there. Not only the people who have been suffering with anxiety, anger, sadness, grief, but that the folks who are around them, too. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the way that you talk about the friends surrounding these folks, and maybe even the experience of some of the family members and friends of some of the philosophers you brought up in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, that how we might be better friends, better family members to our beloveds who are struggling with anxiety and depression and sadness and, um, anger, you know, that how can we be better stewards of our, of our fellow humans? Yes. Um,
2: so like, I don't blame us, but we tend to be, I think our society, I think U.S. society tends mm-hmm. to be nyctophobic which means scared of the dark when it comes to emotions, right? So again, I think we've been taught that We're supposed to cheer someone up, bring them the light. So if someone's in a dark place, you're supposed to like um, bring them out of it, like uh, just like shine light on them, open their blinds, get them out of bed and stuff like that. Or sometimes when it's really bad, like grief, we sometimes out of a failure to like, I also think of us as like sort of emotionally inept, like we tend to not know what to say. So then we end up either saying something kind of um, really terrible, like- (laughs) When my mom, my mom had a, she had nine kids and one of them died when he was nine. Mm -hmm. And the people around her made her life so much worse. The so-called consolers made her life so much worse by trying to make it okay, trying to make her get over it. Mm -hmm. And so the worst thing that I heard that just pierces my heart is they said, oh, it's so great that you have all those other kids. Right? So we do this to each other. Because we don't know what to say. And so that's one extreme is you can say something awful. And C. S. Lewis talks about all the awful things he used to tell people until it was him who was experiencing
1: it. And then he thought, Oh, oh I don't want to hear anything that people are saying. And there's or, even those cautionary tales too, like La Llorona, who is like the mother who drowned her babies. Right. Yeah. You don't want to be like her. She's yeah. scary. She's gonna come and get you at night. Yeah, she's crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's crazy. Mm-hmm. And,
2: or, or we, um, we abandon each other. <laughs> like, like someone yeah. will say, well, I didn't know what to say to them. So I just, I didn't respond at all to that news of they lost their parent or they lost their sibling. Right. And so then it's like, okay, we're not very good at this in general. And and yeah. everyone gets very nervous about it and stuff. And so I think that, um, if we think about it differently, if we don't think that our job is to go in there and, and shine lights on people, because we don't know what to say. We don't have a light to shine. Do we really believe it happened for a reason? Maybe not. So instead of thinking that that's our job, if we could just think that our job is to go in there and not leave them alone, right? Like not leave them feeling like they have nobody in the world who will ever understand them. That if they want to talk about their loved one, they can. If they don't want to, they don't have to. Like just trying to not negate what they're saying, but actually listen to it. And I have another example, which is that my... My mom, on the day that my book came out, which was last Tuesday, was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and now she's on hospice, right? So like just the devastating blow. And she would call people and tell them, and the most common reaction was, no, you can't say that. Shh, Don't say that. Don't say you're dying. It's not true, right? And I just thought, wow, what adding insult to injury. She's actually Mm. dealing with the real thing. And now you're telling her, well, with that attitude, you're never going to get better. Right. And I just think, oh, how we pummel each other by accident, because what you would, you would ask them and they said, no, we love her. We don't want her to die. We want her to be okay. Yeah. But that's, it's a lot of wishful thinking going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can hurt each other as opposed to um, thinking of pain as something that can unite us. And so to be that person who, the the griever does not have to fake it they don't have to we're not going to deny their negativity we're not going to say well they're just determined to be negative right we're gonna Mm -hmm. hold it we're going to listen to it if they want or say nothing like I think saying nothing but being around is also good but I I give like all of the leeway to the person who is grieving to be able to decide what they want and what they need and then our job is just to really pay attention to them Mm. so i love this story from elizabeth kugler ross um she told the story of there was two parents on the phone with their daughter and the daughter had just lost her husband so the daughter's grieving and the daughter starts to cry Mm. and the mother says okay i'm gonna let you go because the mother's uncomfortable because the daughter's crying and feels like it's it's her job to like restore or give privacy to the young woman who's crying. Mm. And the dad says, "No, I'm just going to stay on the line and you can cry as much as you want." Mm. I thought, "Oh, there there it is. There's beauty, right? If we could approach each other that way and not be made so uncomfortable by someone else's sadness and just sort of hold on and stay there and help them." Uh, that that will actually bring more comfort to the person than just hanging up or saying something that you're trying to uplift them with. So I think if we could change our own attitude as the comforters to say, oh, maybe maybe the, the weight of the world's not on me. It's not my job to make them feel better. I I can't do that, right? They they have something serious going on, and they might just take comfort. Like my my only job is if I love the person to kind of hang around and not be one of the people who deserts them mm-hmm. and who can be there to listen and cry with them or watch movies and ignore it, right? Whatever they want to do, that would just, I think, produce a more emotionally um, like, honest world. And then we might even be able to join in with their sorrow, right? Sometimes we can feel someone else's sadness and kind of relate to it without trying to one-up them or anything like that. Yes. But be more comfortable like sitting in that spot because that spot doesn't mean that we're broken. It just means that we're sad.
1: That is amazing. And um, thank you for sharing about your own family and your own struggles. And I'm really sorry to hear about your mom. It makes it
2: real because uh, it, tests, it tests me, right? It tests my book, yeah. it tests my theory, it tests my idea. And it's like, yes, it is actually better. I, I did a book event that night That that my book came out. And then I, after, you know, after I gave my 20 minute presentation, I said, "I, I would feel like a hypocrite if I didn't tell you that this is what's going on in my life right now. So while I'm very happy about the book coming out, there's also this very sort of devastating news. And I don't have to smile through it, right? I've written a whole book that permits me to be able to feel two things at once, which is a kind of joy and excitement and also a sadness. Like I wish we could just allow ourselves to inhabit those and allow others to inhabit the bittersweet, as Susan Cain calls it. Like, I just love like saying, and we can laugh while we're grieving. Like, like there's just, we, we're so much more complex than happy or sad. Are you okay? Are you good? You know, there's so yeah. much more complexity to us. And if we could just say, well, right now I'm not good, but you know, maybe in an hour or an hour ago, I was fine. And now I just feel in the dumps but without that causing like the, the alarm bells to go off. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that is, that's what it means to be human. That's okay.
0: In essence, to stop treating it like it's a binary. You know, yes, it, it, which, yeah. it, which we're, so much, we're so much more than just machines.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. We have to get away from the binaries. Yeah. Um, Mariana, can you talk a little bit about for anyone who might say look at this book and say, well, well, what does Mariana know about, you know, what science has shown us about the mental health of our people in the United States? Can you talk a little bit about where science meets or does not meet some of the data that we are collecting already now about mental health and or, um, I don't know how else to put it uh, Mm -hmm. other than mental health, but like the subjects that you talk about dealing with both happiness and sadness, anger, finding peace with everything.
2: Yeah. Um I think science gives us some words or Western medicine. I'm not even sure how to distinguish these, but sort of the Western way of looking at things in scientific terms gives us some words, some words that are sort of outdated that my students still hold on to, like serotonin deficiency. That's been overturned as a theory, um, but people still use it as though it's explanatory. I think science gives some words and some of those words are useful. Um, Certainly the, the whole the DSM, the whole idea of diagnoses is really helpful for us because what it does is it grants us access to healthcare, right? It grants us access to therapy and medication, which I think are quite helpful. And so I'm in no way, um, pitting Western medicine against philosophy. There was a book in the eighties called Plato, not Prozac. (laughs) And it just, it was basically trying to say, we don't need that stuff, that medical stuff medical terminology. And, you know, we just need philosophy. And I think, oh, my book could be retitled Plato and Prozac. I don't (laughs) think that there's a war between the words. I do think what I would like to do right now, what I feel is that there's sort of a tyranny, like there's only one way to look at it, Mm -hmm. which is you're broken, your brain is broken, you know, and it's this super medicalized way of looking at it. And I think that's one way to look at it. But I don't think that that way necessarily makes people feel dignified what I have found is that it makes people feel better when they have a diagnosis than when they don't, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not in the business of like trying to make you feel good about feeling bad. Right. It's just kind of telling you the actual thing that you have. And so I think philosophy is good at giving more context, more words. Like, I just want to like flood the, our society with words. So what I love about Ansaldúa who suffered with depression um, she came up with her own metaphor. She didn't say I'm clinically depressed very often in her correspondence and in her writing. She said, I go into the Cuadlicue state. Mm-hmm. And you ask, okay, what is that, Gloria Saldua? And she says, oh, that's when I go into the stony arms of Cuadlicue, who's the Aztec mother goddess, and she's got snakes for heads and is made of stone. And I hate it, and I'm there for weeks on end, and it's the worst thing in the world. And then I come out of it, and then I write about it, and now it's part of my knowledge production. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, that's a very very new interesting metaphor right this is not just the standard I'm clinically depressed and Mm -hmm. I think what that does for her is it allows her to be creative about it it allows her to maintain her dignity it allows her to um, write creatively and she's not really giving um, prescriptions for other people she just says well what I do with this is I then write about it and I learn about it and that you know she talks about how it, you know, in, in in a very, very small way is beneficial to her. And she says that it it is part of her process, but you definitely could bet that she would try anything in terms of lessening mm-hmm. the suffering of it. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not have health insurance. And so she could not get like access to medicine or therapy, but she did all sorts of non-Western medicines and therapies. And so it's not a war. You can have both. You can talk very creatively about a mental illness and you can also be on medication, right? So there's not, doesn't have to be any kind of antagonism between them. It's the both. And it's the, what makes you feel dignified rather than um, what does the doctor say that I am? Right. So whatever makes, again, I want to defend the individual, whatever it is that you want to call yourself, that's what you get to call yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Like whether you don't want to use that term or you do want to use it, or you want to be on medicine or don't want to be like, I don't think there's any weakness. Like that's so old that medicine is weakness. Like I don't believe that at all. Yeah. So it's really about like, how do we talk about ourselves? That makes us feel like we're on our own side. Not like there's some broken part of us that we have to hide away from other people.
1: I think that what I love about uh, encountering your book the way that we're doing it now as we talk about it through a podcast, but also having narrated your book and also then getting to read it in preparation for the narration is that it's just what you offered there is that there's no uh, um, medicine versus uh, philosophy. That if we could actually open the context for uh, how we can seek dignity, that as individuals and then that also my hope is that it it aligns with yours and that in as a society like i would love for some research to be done in this area that that could escalate it to what the you know the lofty heights of of medicine and data and proven research and things like this that uh that people trust you know i i feel like we don't have a a solid primer on how to handle these things. And your book is so, so, uh, so good. I just love it so much. I cannot, uh, you have better words than me. Uh, That's why you are the writer. But it was it, it, I felt truly um, engulfed and embraced in whatever state that I was in. Um, So I I really encourage all of you to to read Night Vision or to listen to Night Vision. Um, You'll hear my voice. (laughs) an amazing Uh, voice uh, thank you so much and uh, what there was another question i had but i'm trying to think um can i say one thing about philosophy go so
2: the social sciences are good at doing all those studies and i think that this sort of study would be really hard because we'd have to be raised under a whole different system right you couldn't just Mm -hmm. shove 20 people in a room or 2000 and say okay now now, don't think positive, right? We've been ingesting this messaging for our whole lives. And so it would be very hard to conduct a study like this. Now, I joke about loving philosophy because I don't have to do those studies. (laughs) I, I just have theories, right? Philosophy is about theory. And at the end of my book, I'm very careful to say, don't just take my word for it. Don't just like make me the authority and say, well, she's right because she said it. No, is it true? Does it ring true in your life? Is this how it feels for you? And again, there's going to be a lot of people for whom they're just like, oh, I don't, I don't experience this world at all. And, you know, I would love to like talk to them and try to like, I don't know, dig under the skin a little bit, but. Um, for a vast number of people, they're like, Whoa, I recognize myself, right? And there's a kind of joy in recognition that you know, I, I'm not trying to sell something in terms of like believe my theory. I'm saying, you know, I'm here, I have I have a theory and you might like it, right? You might find it to be true. And so That's what I like about philosophy is that it's actually not, I can't, philosophers are very weak on being able to force, right? We can't force, we can't compel you to believe anything, but through the power of argument, through the power of um,
1: conversation,
2: right? I'm supposed to try to convince you, right? So at the end of the book, you can say, "I'm, I'm convinced or I'm not convinced, and that's fine, and anything is fine, and I'm sure I've made a lot of mistakes in the book, but... I think in general, like I think I've tapped into the world that I don't want to live in. That I'm trying to create myself uh, a more emotionally flexible world that I can feel more comfortable being myself and not hiding so much from other people because that's supposedly, you know, the thing to do if you have any manners at all.
1: I'm remembering something from your book, Mariana. That was um, I don't know if it was Gloria or or who was talking about this, but. Um you brought up the kind of narrative of immigrants and I think in the United States today we we have a a certain view uh and and maybe there's more shading to that but you you talked about um the notion of like the the myth of the lazy immigrant and that one of the philosophers that you brought up challenges that in her own writing was it Gloria Yeah, or... it was Audre. Okay. And
2: it was one thing that she learned from the Cuadricueste. And so, Gloria Saldua grew up in South Texas, where I live, about forty minutes north of where I live. And she was supposed to be a, a wife and a mother, and like you know, just a good little girl. And she was anything but, right? So you mentioned that she's queer, she's short, she's dark. She liked to do all the things that, that supposedly that the boys like to do, right? She would she would carry around a knife and she would whittle and she would just do leather work, right? So she didn't fit in at all in her community. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I'm never going to be that. And she also liked to, to think and to write and to paint and read. So she would just be like lying on the couch reading in her sixth generation mexican-american household that was just perplexed by her why aren't you cooking why aren't you cleaning like why don't you but out the like why don't you you know comb your hair what's wrong with you like you're you're kind of a failure of a girl you know and part of that was reading and writing she said she read kierkegaard i think she said she read Kierkegaard in sixth grade <laughs> which is amazing. She loved Kierkegaard so much. I I'm convinced she would have been a philosopher if she was in my, she went to my university. I think that if I could have been her teacher and and the people around me, my colleagues, I think we would have like philosophy was not open to her at mm. that time. And she even, she wrote it down in her notes. She said the most closed of male sanctums philosophy. Mm. So she was banned from it, although she took a lot of classes. Um, so being she was a farm worker as well right so she picked tomatoes going from that life to the life of a writer made her feel like the laziest person on earth her mom said she was lazy her family she'd get so embarrassed because the mom would be like yeah she doesn't do anything all day she reads oh she paints right it looks like especially for a Mm mexican-american who are seen as like pickers you're supposed to devote your whole life to the hot sun and this would actually it, it was internalized right she wasn't critical of it, she actually felt this from the inside. why am I so lazy? But she'd write these books and essays that were amazing, but she always had that thing inside of her and she said that during one of the Gualiuaa states, it was so much eating at her until she kind of realized, oh, this is what we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to feel lazy. We're supposed to feel like we're doing it wrong. We're supposed to feel less than because you, what she calls like the white eyes, are seeing me as like a failed, you know, tomato picker. So Mm -hmm. all artists, I think, have the reputation of being lazy or just like entitled or whatever. But she's as a Mexican-American artist, even more so because her kind are the ones who are supposed to put the food on the table for the rest of us. And so although for her, she says, well, I learned this in the Cualicua state. So this is valuable to me, even though I hate every minute of it. And I, but before and after I can think about it and I can write about it and I can like face it and I can understand it. Mm -hmm. I still go in kicking and screaming. Right. So she has this beautiful way of saying like, I hate this depression. And also when it happens, like when I come out of it, I'm able to write about it and do something about it and learn and grow deeper into myself. Mm. So, you know, for her, It was a part of her knowledge production. And she was able to uncover that myth of like the lazy Mexican and say, yes, this is why I feel that bad. And, you know, it probably lessened the feeling of it being that bad, although I'm sure it never totally went away. Her feeling lazy because she didn't write for 10 hours a day, right? She's, she would have to take walks. She would have to think she'd have to spend time on the couch. Right. And so I think it never left her completely, but she could at least wrap her mind around it. Um, with time and with the experience, which I just think is a really cool model, not that we have to do that or that we have to think that way, just of someone speaking differently about something that many, many, many people live with,
1: yeah. that language, that that elucidation of of uh, uh, an experience that I've had personally, I am an immigrant. I was born in Brazil, and then I came to the United States. and um my mom is from Kentucky and my dad is from Ecuador and he's afro indigenous latino so you know the experience of coming to the states and seeing myself in a different frame there were many times where i felt like i was lazy or i'm not achieving enough and and the, the you know the mythic good immigrant what is that and am i achieving that i mean so you sharing that i feel like will not be only helpful for those of us who have come from other countries and struggle with mental health, but something that is not talked about in our cultures, you know, like just, you know, you just have to get back up and and do what you gotta do um, because there's no room for that or there's no medical care for that uh, was really, uh, personally, very impactful for me. And I, I feel like it will be impactful for others as well. I also wanted to point out just one thing too, because I know we're probably coming towards the end of our conversation. It's just been so good to talk with you, Mariana. And thank you, Mark, for you know hosting this, this incredible conversation. Um, was that in the world of, I wanted to say one last thing, which is that in a world where there is social media and there is such curating of your life on there, That it's even harder sometimes to get out of this context that, oh, I am less than, I am broken, when you see images and expose oneself to images that are, or videos that are completely, I mean, they might be part of someone's life, but it's not the whole life, right? And we don't get to see the whole thing. So what I love about your book is that it embraces the whole person, wherever they are right then. Yes. Imagine Thank if you. we could flood
2: social media with our like mediocre days. <laughs> like I would love that because you're right, it's curated, right? So yeah. maybe those are true, but my best friend looks like she's enjoying every minute of her life. And I know that's not true. So I'm like, oh, okay. What, what's the underside? Like, and you can say things like that, but it doesn't, if, if all you're getting are the photos that are good, you're not really like able to, to really believe it, right? Once you get on the phone with real human beings, you hear what's yeah. going on. But if we're just sort of seeing it, We're like, wow! Everyone else is grateful for their lives. Why am I messing up? I have such an amazing life. I have so many good things and healthy kids and blah blah blah. Why don't I? Why aren't I happier? All right. Well, you know, I could tell you why, and and so it's not your fault that you're not happier. It's like (laughs) we have this pressure to be happy that that often works the opposite way, just to make us feel worse than an okay life.
0: Well, I really appreciate the time that two of you have taken to uh, be here. But before we go, could you uh, tell us what uh, the two of you have uh, next on your plate?
1: Mariana? Sure. Um, So I'm really
2: just trying to promote this book. I really want to get it into the hands of people who want to read it. And that is difficult because there's a lot of good books out there. And there's just like, everything is of the day, right? So it's like, this is already yesterday's news because it happened last week. So I'm really just trying to kind of keep up with, going around. I'll be in uh, New Jersey, New York in a couple of weeks and just try to talk about it and reach all the different audiences that might be interested in it. That's what I'm focused on this summer.
1: Right on. And Mariana, do you have a a TikTok? Do you have an Instagram? How are people finding out about whenever you're in their city?
2: Yeah, I have an Instagram. It's Mariana.alessandri. Mm hmm. Um, And I have a website. You can go to my website. I have a newsletter on there that I I only send about once a month. I don't like spam you. Um, (laughs) But anyone can go to my website to to read some of my other essays. I've been doing this kind of thing since 2014, just trying to defend people who are without cheer. (laughs) And I find it really funny and fun. um, And it's just a different perspective from most of what's out there. So you are welcome to see that. And Gisela, you want to tell us what you're doing?
1: Yeah. Um, so I am currently am uh, also in promotion mode for this project because, again, I found it so personally so helpful um, that I I really want to give it a, a chance to to have many many eyes many many ears on it and to just uplift Mariana as well as someone who we can look to to give this new perspective on things while also taking into account the historical context of what we know about mental health and self-help books. Um, So anytime, Mariana, you call me, we're going to (laughs) talk about this, (laughs) but also to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And also I just uh, finished something uh, with Audible that uh, one of my dear friends, Diana Grassanti, wrote. It's an Audible original and it's a Uh, basically a play over the radio or over however you listen to um, podcasts and it's called Vanessa in Bed and so that'll be coming out I think sometime in June so I'm really excited about that. Carla Sousa was our lead and she did a fantastic job it was just so beautiful working with her in the room and Peron Youssef Sada was our uh, Sada, excuse me, I Spanishized her <laughs> Iranian last name. <laughs> Peron Yusuf Sada is um, our director, and it was just a, a, a beautiful time working with them. I'm also in the post-production stage for a a pilot that my husband, Joseph Castillo Mediet, wrote based some on his life in California growing up with undocumented parents and um, it's loosely based on that experience and I am in it and I produced it so we're now in the final stages of getting sound mixing and um, working with our composer the picture is locked we've um had all of our color correction. So these are some of the things that as a producer, I'm overseeing lightly. Joe is really on top of it. And I'm just so proud Um, because it's, it's really beautiful. And and to the point of giving more voices to uh, marginalized groups. Uh, We're both Latino, um, Latinx or Latine, depending on how Mm -hmm. we identify in the day. Um, And we just wanted to, to give an opportunity for this business that we love so much, the entertainment business, to reflect some of the stories that we grew up with. And uh, That's hopefully... amazing. How do we find yeah. that? That's called um, This Boy's Vida. We do have yeah. a, um, an Instagram and we do have a website for that. And it's called uh, This Boy's Apostrophe S Vida, which is life in Spanish. Um, and the subtitle is uh, Made in America. Because oftentimes, too, you know, that the Latine experience is seen as other when many of us, um, the border, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And so if you know anything about uh, American history, uh, many lands were acquired and or sold uh, from the Spanish government or Mexican government to the United States. And so we've been here forever since the beginning. And so um, I count myself as a a proud American, but also as somebody that comes from a um, um, multicultural background, and so yeah. Uh, cool. So you can find us on the website, but also we're going to be submitting it to festivals in the next year. So hopefully, we'll get some distribution. Someone who wants to create the whole series, and it's definitely a labor of love. So <laughs> I appreciate all the love that we can get on that, and that's that's it. really really cool. The, and yeah. you can find me on Instagram, Gisela Chipe, and my name, G-I-S-E-L-A-C-H-I-P-E.
0: Well, those sound like fantastic projects. And and, and thank the both, the both of you for the time you've taken, Mariana, for your wonderful book, Gisela, for uh, making it accessible to people who are going to, who may not uh, have the opportunity to read it, but will definitely have the opportunity to listen to it. I appreciate that very much.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Muchísimas gracias. Sí, igualmente.